Well, I'd like to begin a little differently. I'd like to begin with a little grammar lesson. Hopefully it doesn't bring up some bad memories from your school days, hopefully good memories. Don't worry, I don't have any grades that you'll be evaluated by. But I want to ask a question. Do you know the difference between an indicative statement and an imperative statement? An indicative statement is a statement of fact, while an imperative is a command. And so an indicative statement would be something like this. John is wearing a New York Giants t-shirt. John is wearing a New York Giants t-shirt. An imperative statement would be, John, throw away that t-shirt. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Do you see the difference? Well, in the New Testament... The apostles often speak of our salvation with indicative statements as they describe what God has done on our behalf. And so, for example, in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters, uh, Paul describes our, chap uh, our salvation over and over and over again with these indicative statements. But then when he comes to chapter 12, he changes gears and he moves into a lot of imperative statements commands about how we are to live this out, how we live out our salvation. You see the same pattern in uh, Ephesians and Colossians. First indicative, what we have in Christ, and then imperative, how we live it out in Christ. Does that make sense? You see the same pattern in First Peter, indicative, then imperative. In the first 12 verses, uh, Peter describes our salvation with these incredible indicative statements. You guys remember this from last week. We talked about that. Some of the things that we mentioned. God caused us to be born again. We have a living hope. We possess an, an, an imperishable salvation that cannot be taken away from us. That God is keeping us from losing it and so forth. Incredible indicative statements. So far, no imperatives. As we come to verse 13, though, today and following, things are going to change. So for the rest of the book, we're going to see in the book of 1 Peter, 30 imperatives. As Peter tells us how to live out our great salvation. Church, it's absolutely essential that we hold together both the indicatives of our great salvation and the imperatives of how we live this out. And a major problem sometimes, some of the biggest problems in the church stem from overemphasizing one to the detriment of the other. On one hand, some people overemphasize the imperatives. For them... Christianity is just a bunch of rules, right? The Bible is a huge rule book. So when they think about the faith, basically it boils down to do this, don't do that, right? People who think this way will often grow frustrated and sometimes walk away from the church or leave or live very 
kind of impoverished Christian's life. Ever met somebody like that? That that's kind of their impression of Christianity and that it's basically just a bunch of rules? Certainly the Bible has a lot of commands, but more importantly, as you read the pages of Scripture, it's a grand story of redemption, isn't it, that runs through the ages, runs through the ages, and and describes these remarkable riches of salvation. And these incredible riches give us the power and the motivation to live out those imperatives. The indicatives give the basis for the imperatives. On the other hand, some people overemphasize the indicatives. They hear all of these incredible things about salvation that are promised, and they miss the imperatives. They mistakenly think that since their salvation is secure, they can live however they please. If they think that, they don't truly understand salvation. True salvation means declaring that Jesus is Lord. Which by nature means that we are going to obey what he says, right? Imperatives. But when people go for that, they're led astray into false conversion sometimes. And mistakenly, again, lead kind of weak Christian lives. So do you guys see why this is important? To hold those two together? To hold these great indicatives of what God has done on our behalf? And then also to live out what He has commanded us to do. We need to get this right. And you know what? It is beautiful when the church does get this. Imagine an army of Christians who really grasp the incredible riches of what God has done for His people, who are blown away as they really plunge into exploring what God has done on on their behalf. Then, based on that salvation, they seek to live out those imperatives, not to earn salvation, but to honor God, to help others, and to demonstrate to a watching world the power of the gospel in a changed life. Amen? And as they obey those imperatives, they're going to experience the riches of salvation even more and more. And then they're going to live out those imperatives even more and more. You see how it's beautiful when the church will get this and live it out? So let me invite you to 1 Peter. As we continue our series on this remarkable book, as I said, we covered the first 12 verses so far, and we saw these incredible riches of salvation, what God has done on our behalf. Now, uh, we're going to see how we live out this salvation. There's two parts to our passage. It's found in verses, it's going to be, the passage is found in verses 13 to 21. So again, I invite you to turn there with me as we continue our study here of 1 Peter. The first part is imitate the holiness of God. Imitate the holiness of God. If you're with me, let's read verses 13 and 14 together. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So Peter begins there. You see the first word of the verse with the word therefore. Again, he's basing all of these commands that are coming up on everything he was just saying previously, right? Everything that he's going to talk about is based on this salvation that we now enjoy, okay? So in light of everything he's just saying, he says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. The Christian life, friends, requires focus. It doesn't come easy, but it requires discipline to live out the Christian life. He says that we must focus on the grace that Christ will bring when he returns. So we need to live with the end in mind. Does that make sense? That as we live with the end in mind, it gives meaning and purpose to the present. Also, Peter regards his readers as children of God. Isn't it encouraging just to pause for a second and be reminded of that? That we are children of God. We share in this eternal, unchangeable relationship with God. Isn't that awesome? To be part of the family of God. Now also notice though, but he calls us obedient children. We're obedient children. Now, we know that back in verse 3, Peter said that God has caused us to be born again. Prior to coming to know Christ, we didn't really have that hunger and desire to obey God. But now that we have been born again, God gives us a new nature, doesn't he? We now want to start obeying God. We want to honor him with our lives. But we also know that it doesn't come easy, does it? That there's always going to be a temptation by the world, by our sinful nature, as Peter said there, to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. There's a pull, isn't there? Now, the audience that Peter was writing to, we've said before, these were primarily Gentile Christians. And you should know something about the background that Peter was writing to, these Gentile Christians. The Roman Empire, the Gentile world that Peter was writing to, Man, it was just filled with ungodliness, ungodliness running contrary to the teachings of Scripture. Idolatry was all over the place, all kinds of gods that people made with their hands, as we just sang about. Prostitution was acceptable, often part of pagan religious practice. It was commonplace that husbands would commit adultery with with uh, prostitutes and mistresses and slaves. And speaking of slaves, about 25 to 40 percent of the population in the city of Rome was comprised of slaves. Gladiator games filled the city of Rome where Peter was writing from. And it was, you know, people would flock to the Colosseum and places and see people being killed and animals killed. Unwanted babies were drowned or left to die in the woods. The Roman emperor of this time, Nero, he was just an absolute moral train wreck. You just go read about him yourself. I won't even get into what he was up to. So the church was born in this setting, right? This is where the people came from. 1 Peter 4.3 alludes to it. He says, for the time that is past now suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So the fallen world was tempting Peter's day, in Peter's day, the church there to conform to where they came from. Y'all see the difference? What that was going on there? They were asking them, they were wanting them to come back, appealing to their sinful desires. What about our day? What about our day? Well, certainly, you know, Christianity, as it spread and, and made a lot of impact around the world, some of those, you know, practices were eliminated. But we certainly know that the world hasn't gone away, has it? Idolatry, idolatry is still all, all over the place, isn't it? We just have a lot of non-religious idols that we have. And maybe instead of religious idols, we have all kinds of people who are worshiping the God of prestige or power or pleasure. Most people around us are going to reject any kind of absolute truth. They're going to reject uh, the, or just affirm the idea that all religions are basically the same, right? Sexual morality is still very prevalent, right? This may be taking on new forms, but it's still around. Greed and materialism are consuming our society. On and on and go, on and on it goes. So yes, the world is trying to conform us. Do you realize that? That all around you, the world tries to conform you and tries to pull you back to your former desires. So in light of that pressure, the apostles urged us to resist this temptation. Romans 12, 1-2, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Peter is writing to his readers, and also for us today, that the church needs to resist the temptation, the pressure to conform to the fallen world around us. Amen? Do you see that? Instead of being conformed to our former ignorance, though, Peter says we're to imitate the holiness of God. We are to imitate the holiness of God. Verse 15 and 16, let's read it together. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What does the holiness of God mean? Now, traditionally, the word holy applied to God had a twofold meaning. It meant that God was separate from creation and that God was separate from sin. However, I've become convinced that the traditional understanding needs modification. Now, I believe God is separate from sin, and I believe he is separate from creation. But the word holy itself doesn't mean those things. In the last generation or so, there's, there's growing evidence as people have studied the Greek and the Hebrew and outside cultures and so forth, that the word is better understood to mean devotion. Devotion. So holiness means that God is devoted to himself and he is devoted to his glory. For example, in the famous passage where you see this in Isaiah chapter 6, where God is called holy, 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 right? 
God was not separating himself from creation. He actually went to Isaiah in the temple and revealed himself to them. Moreover, when he says, or when the angels say, holy, 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 what do they go on to say? The whole world is what? Full of his glory. God created this universe and he made it to demonstrate his glory. He wants his creatures to glorify him since he is worthy. And you know what? We are actually most satisfied when we are glorifying God because that is what he made us to do. When we're glorifying anything else, we are going for cut-rate second place, right? And we're not satisfied. That's why we have to keep chasing after those things, because they don't satisfy us. So God, God is devoted to his own glory. Not because he's prideful, but because he is esteeming the highest degree in the, in the universe, which is himself, and he's drawing up all of creation in that worship. So if we're to be holy as God is holy, what does that mean? It means we're to be devoted to God and his glory, as Peter says there, in all our conduct. Our speech is devoted to God. Our time is devoted to God. Our money's devoted to God. Our minds are devoted to God. Our bodies are devoted to God. Our talents are devoted to God. Everything is to be devoted to God. We are to be holy in all our conduct. Does that make sense? Completely sold out. Devoted to Him. In my opinion, this is my humble opinion. So you can take it for what it's worth. But I think I'm right. (laughs) In my humble opinion. I believe. And I say this, you know, here it is. I believe that a lack of devotion, apathy, is one of the biggest hindrances in the American church. The church... And America is like this sleeping giant with all of these resources, all of these people, all of this talent, all of this opportunity, but just overall kind of apathetic. Now, we can't change the American church as a whole, but we can look at ourselves this morning, can't we? Maybe we're just a little bit apathetic if we're honest with ourselves. Is that anybody today? I think the starting point would be for you and I, if that is the case, to acknowledge that before God today. And you know what? To ask Him to renew our devotion to Him. He is a good God. And He doesn't want us to be apathetic. But we need a heart change, don't we? And so to ask God, sincerely, God, change my heart. Let me ask you to do that today. Not out of a sense of guilt, but just a desire to have a long-term, real change where you are seeking God with all your heart. Also, I would say we need to weed out some stuff in our lives what I would call devotion detractors. 
things that just fill up our lives. You know, you and I, we only have so much time and heart for doing things every day, right? I mean, we just run out. So there's, there's only so much that we can give ourselves to. And I'm concerned that we give ourselves to so many things that kind of drain out our devotion. And so God has given kind of the crumbs, amen? For example, I read that the average American adult spends, I said adult here, not teenager. The average American adult spends almost four hours on their mobile device and almost another three and a half hours on their TV. Everybody's trying to put it under their, <laughs> under their seat now or whatever. God wants us to focus on him. And we all know that if there's a competition between those two, we all know what's easier, right? We all know what could be more entertaining. God wants us to be devoted to him. So we need to make some changes. I'm not going to give you a laundry list. You know what you might have to do. But to get back to the basic of things and say, God, I want to be devoted to you. Help me to remove some of these devotion detractors in our lives. May God stir us this morning to repent of our apathy, and be wholly devoted to God and His glory. All right, so the first part is Im imitate the holiness of God. The second part is conduct yourselves with the fear of God. Conduct yourselves with the fear of God. Let's read verse 17 together. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Scripture here is laying out some tough truths, isn't it? Some bare bones, just hard facts. And it teaches here that all of us will be judged according to our deeds on Judgment Day. And it's not just Peter here. This is all throughout Scripture. These words are clarified. Now, to, to clarify though further, we are saved by God's grace. We know as Christians that we are not judged based on our works. We are saved by the grace of God. Amen? Is what Jesus did for us on the cross. But we also know, according to what we just read, according to what other pages of Scripture say, that we're judged also by our deeds for rewards. So if this is a clear biblical teaching, we should live accordingly. So Peter says we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. We saw that a couple weeks ago. We are exiles here. We're spiritual exiles waiting for our true home. So why does it say that we should conduct ourselves with fear? He's referring to the fear of God. Now I know that that idea of the fear of God has fallen kind of on hard times in our day and age. Would you not agree? When people think about God in the church, especially in our culture, Pretty much there's an exclusive focus on the love of God. Now the Bible teaches that God is absolutely loving, completely loving. 
But it also teaches that He is a righteous judge. It teaches both, doesn't it? And given our sinful ways, we should fear God. And the Old Testament and the New Testament both commanded from my study of the fear of God, basically every major character or almost every major character either teaches that we should fear God or it says that they themselves lived it out. Now, when we talk about fearing God, it's not some type of irrational fear, you know, or paralyzing fear like the fear of the boogeyman in the closet or whatever it might be. In fact, it's a very rational fear. We are fearing God as our creator and our judge. He holds our lives and our eternal destinies in his hand. Makes perfect sense to me that we should fear him. A reverent fear, right? An awe. Jesus says these things in Luke 12, 4-5. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that there's nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So God is perfectly righteous, and he expects us to obey our, his commands. And I think God, just in his mercy, you know what? He gives us all kinds of glimpses in our regular day-to-day lives about fearing others in a healthy way to check our sin. Children should have a healthy fear of their parents so that they obey their parents. The parents said amen. <laughs> Workers should have a healthy fear of their bosses so they're not lazy and goof around, right? Citizens should have a healthy fear of the government to keep the laws. And yes, you do have that fear. I don't care how big and bad you are. Let me just give you an illustration to drive home this point that I think all of us would resonate with. Whenever you're driving down the road and a police officer pulls behind you, What is the first thing that you do? You check your speedometer to see how fast you're going. And then the next thing you start doing is you start running in your mind. Okay, uh, is everything updated? All the papers in my glove box? Are the brake lights working? Whatever it else might be, you're running through all the possible laws that you could be breaking at that moment. And you're driving your car like this. You're not fiddling with the radio. And as soon as the police officer pulls to the other way, what do you do? Whew. You could be doing absolutely nothing wrong, but when he pulls up behind you, you have a healthy fear, don't you? You're not fearing man. You're not fearing really that person, but you're fearing what God has put into place in this world. And it's just sort of a signpost that we are to fear God who judges our deeds, as Peter says, with impartiality. By the way, just in case you might be misinterpreting this, God doesn't want us to fear him. Just, just, he does want us to, not to, to fear him so we won't sin, but he also wants us to fear him so that we just grow in our appreciation and our desire to obey Him. When we start obeying Him, we see that His ways are good, right? 
It's just not slap your wrist, but he wants you to change your heart. Next, Peter explains further why we should conduct ourselves with fear in verses 18 to 19. He says, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter says, look, you were ransomed from the futile ways of your forefathers. Again, Peter's writing to primarily Gentile pagans who worshiped all kinds of gods. Even the Roman emperor himself was regarded as divine. So these gods were man-made, and they often reflected the sinful ways of their creators. None of these gods is the biblical God, who's the creator and sustainer of all. None of these gods is a perfect standard of righteousness, and none of these gods can provide redemption. Worshiping those gods is futile, but the living God provides redemption. And he did it through the perfect sacrifice of Christ who gave his precious blood to pay for our sins. His sacrifice was perfect and powerful because he is sinless. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him Christ we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So as we think about emulating and imitating the holiness of God, as we think about conducting ourselves with fear, the fear of God, we should also keep in mind that precious sacrifice that was given on our behalf to bring us redemption. Amen? We should be motivated by what Jesus did for us. My wife and I watched the TV show, uh, All Creatures Great and Small. Uh, based on the famous books by James Harriet. Anybody watched that here recently? All right. Big, not real popular, apparently. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Well, we liked it. All right. We liked it. We liked it anyway. But it's based on his books about his experience kind of as a veterinarian. Um, it's a really good series. It's got beautiful scenery, lovable characters, and so forth. But it's set in Scotland, again, beautiful scenery and all this, and it's based on this veterinarian who's recently graduated from graduate school, from in veterinary school, and his parents, they didn't have much money, and so they sacrificed tremendously for him to go to school and to earn this veterinarian degree. They really bent over backwards for him to do this, and he recognizes that. And so he worked really hard in school. And now that he's in his career, he continues to work very hard. So his name, James, James is living in light of his parents' sacrifice. He was highly motivated not to squander what they had done on his behalf. Likewise, as we think about our lives, what Christ did on our behalf should motivate us. As we are tempted, we should think about that it was our sin that sent him to the cross. As we think about our priorities in life, we should think about making him the top priority. 
as we think about loving others, even our enemies, we need to be reminded that Jesus loved us even when we had nothing to do with him. Verses 20 to 21, we're going to wrap up with this, these verses. Peter elaborates a little bit more on Christ. He says there, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Christ was foreknown by the Father, meaning there was not just an awareness, but a relationship with him. And Christ existed before the foundation of the world. He's eternal. But amazingly, it says there, he appeared in the last times. Now, when you read that, Peter's not talking about the very end of time when Jesus will return. But in the New Testament, this is talking about the time between the first and second coming because there's no other major events that need to happen before Jesus is going to return. So they say that is the, this is the last times. All that to say Jesus did this for you. He left eternity, became a man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to atone for sin. And then he rose again. All for you. 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 Wow. Before I close, I just want to speak for a moment to someone this morning who maybe is not a Christian. Can I just go back to that quote I read earlier from Jesus when he said in Luke 12, 4 to 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear whom who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. God holds our lives and our eternal destinies in his hand. That is reality. And sadly, each of us sins over and over every day. And God is a righteous judge who will punish sin. This is nothing to be trifled with. Amen? Jesus realized this. On the night before the cross, really the only time you ever see this, Jesus was in spiritual anguish, wasn't he? And this was shocking because Jesus had gone through so much. He's out in the wilderness with Satan for 40 days being tempted. No problem. Huge crowds always pulling at him, exhausted, no problem. Uh, religious leaders are trying to trick him into you know, being destroyed and so forth. No problem. But when he faces what really was facing him at the cross, all of a sudden he was in anguish, wasn't he? That was a different story. He feared God as judge because he was going to pay for our sin. He was going to absorb our judgment. And he dreaded that prospect. Thankfully, he went to the cross and he paid for our sins. That is great news. However, salvation does not happen automatically. We need to respond to him. And if you've never become a Christian, let me encourage you to listen to what Jesus tells you to do. He says to receive salvation, you need to return from your sin. You need to see the awfulness of sin for what it is and want to live for God. And you need to believe in Jesus 
Believe that he is the eternal son of God who left the glories of heaven and went to the cross for you. And if you will turn from your sin and believe in him, you can find eternal life. In the little Christmas booklet that uh, we gave out, I think there's a few more copies out there if you'd want to take one in the foyer. There's a wonderful quote from a man named Jonathan Fing. He's a professor of physics and astronomy at the uh, University of California, Irvine. And he's a really smart man. He's engaged in groundbreaking research uh, about the universe. But listen to his view about what Christ did for us. He says these words, quote, What's truly amazing about the Christian faith is the idea that God made the universe from quarks to galaxies, but at the same time cared enough about us to be born as a human being, to come down, to die and be crucified in the person of Jesus, and to bring forgiveness and new life to broken people. I invite you to turn to Christ today and find the new life that he will richly give you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word here this morning from 1 Peter. Strong words that the apostle wrote to us. We thank you for the glorious news of salvation that he writes of. And I pray for someone here today that they would turn from their sin and trust you fully that today would be the day of salvation. They would realize what Jesus did for them and embrace him as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, for your church this morning, those who have trusted Christ, Lord, we pray for a greater holiness. We confess our apathy to you this morning. We lift up our hands to you today and say, Give us clean hands, Lord. Wash away the idols. Some of them serious, some of them maybe just sort of the trivial things of the world that we entertain ourselves by and drain away our devotion to you. Renew our hearts, we ask this morning, God. And Lord, we pray that we would fear you with a right, healthy fear as one who will judge impartially. And Lord Jesus, we just thank you. We praise you as your people this morning. Thank you for your precious blood that takes away all fear of eternal judgment because you have washed us clean. Thank you so much, Lord. We love you and we praise you. Thank you for this time in your word. May you build up your church through it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.